as the sun is setting on the story of Esther, we enter into a time of celebration for the Jews. God has been working silently behind the scenes. He not only rescued his people from Haman's plan of annihilation, but also protected them from their enemies throughout all of Persia. In honor of God's faithfulness to the Jews, Mordecai sent out letters to every province and proposed the celebration of their deliverance. The Jews agreed, and this celebration became a tradition for them and their children to remember every year. In fact, this tradition is still being celebrated. It's known as the holiday Purim. After the dust settled, Mordecai was promoted to take Haman's place as second in command to the king. From this position of authority, God used Mordecai to bless his people and all of their descendants for years. The Jewish people grew to love and respect Mordecai. And Esther, who was just an ordinary Jewish girl, was used as a crucial piece in God's plan to rescue her people. Against all odds, when hope seemed lost and God seemed distant, we can now clearly see that all along, God truly was at work behind the scenes. So for the last uh, 10 weeks, uh, Matthew, who goes to our uh, Cactus campus, has been narrating the book of Esther to us. And I've uh, preached out of this book three times in the last 30 years, and I've never heard anybody do as good of a job as he has in sharing the story with us. Amen? Yeah. So... So really blessed. I, I remember when we started this series, I said to our staff that we're going to be, uh, you know, spending the next 10 weeks in Esther. And one of them said, 10 weeks? You know, like that's a long time. And I said, man, it's going to go fast and it's going to be just fine. And it really has. And I've been very proud of all of you and at our other campuses and venues. You've sent me notes and, and encouragements of what God is doing through you in this series. And it's been quite a ride. And uh, we're going to celebrate today as we wrap this up uh, what God is doing in your life as we bounce off of the celebration that they cap off the book of Esther with. So let's do this. Let's bow and pray, and then we're going to have some fun together. Father, I thank you for <clears throat> your holy word uh, that records in history things that actually happened and your movement, your activity breaking into this natural world uh, in their lives. And Lord, if anything, what that teaches us is that you love to do that and you still do that today. So as we track the celebration that occurs here at the end of the book of Esther today, I pray that we would not be shy to uh, track the celebration that needs to go on in our lives today as we see you move in our lives. That's my prayer. May we celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a good place to start. There is a fascinating pattern that we see in the Old Testament of the Bible that you don't see as much in the New Testament, that you certainly don't see uh, much in the world of antiquity. And here is the pattern, and that is that whenever God did something unique and powerful in an individual in the Old Testament or in the community as a whole, they would do something to commemorate the event. 
they would pause, hit the pause button, and do something to mark what God had just done in their midst. They might select a symbol for the event, or they might give it a special name, the place where it happened, or they might institute a special feast for the Israelites, the Jewish people. In other words, what we see is they would consistently do something tangible and special to mark the occasion of what God had done, to always remember what God had done that would allow them to then pass it on to future generations and never forget the move of God in their midst. So, for example, very early on in the Bible, we read about Abraham and how Abraham, you guys remember the story from Sunday school, was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. And just before he was about to sacrifice his son, God, who had it planned all along, provided a lamb to be sacrificed uh, for him so he wouldn't have to take his own son. And Abraham, who was so moved by meeting God in that place, decided to name the place Jehovah-Jireh, which in Hebrew means the Lord provides, a forever remembrance of God's provision of the Lamb. Then years later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, is literally wrestling with God, wrestling with God over his call to be the leader of the nation Israel. And at one point, one particular night of intense wrestling with the Lord, Jacob is a changed man. So what does he do? He names the place Peniel, which in the Hebrew means the face of God. Because Jacob says, I've seen the face of God in this moment, and I'm going to mark it forever in our memory. And every time, the Israelites went to Peniel, they would equate that with the move of God in their leader's life. Then all of you know this story during the Exodus event when God is powerfully leading the Israelites out of Egypt into their own land during the last plague, which was one of the worst plagues that God brought on Egypt to force them to let his people go. Uh, the plague was that God was going to strike down all the young baby sons uh, in, in Egypt as a sign to Pharaoh to stop fighting God and let the Israelites go. But he didn't want to strike down the Israelites' sons. And so he told the Israelites to put the blood of the lamb around their doorpost. And if they would do that, then they would pass over that family and not take their sons. And so for 3,500 years, the Israelites, the Jewish people, have celebrated the yearly Passover lamb, complete with all of its wonderful and various symbols of God's amazing actions during that time. And then one of my favorite stories, you have to reach deep into your Sunday school lessons for this one. Uh, years later, as the Israelites were inhabiting the Holy Land, they were battling the dreaded Philistines, who were their enemies. And, and in answer to the prophet Samuel's prayer, God gives them victory. And you know what Samuel does? He, he gets a rock. Just picture any rock you might find in the desert, a big rock. And he takes this big rock out into the middle of their battlefield where they had victory, and he places it there, and he gives the rock a name. Our Sunday school kids would know this. Some of you might have forgotten. The name that he gave the rock was Ebenezer, which does not mean Scrooge. Ebenezer means in the Hebrew, stone of help. And Samuel said, God has been our help here today. And whenever they saw that stone, their Ebenezer, they remembered what God had done in their midst. I could go on and on 
Are you starting to see time and time again, God moves in a special way in the lives of the Jews. And instead of moving on quickly, they hit the pause button, institute some kind of simple, yet very profound action associated with the event that they would regularly come back to, to celebrate and remember what God has done. I'm telling you, the Jewish people are a very symbolic culture, and they have literally hundreds of traditions and various actions that they engage in regularly to remember the profound move of God in their midst. And if you can get this, if you can understand this at all, and I think we all can, then you're ready to wrap up the book of Esther with me, the book that we have been studying this fall here at Scottsdale Bible. Because here's what I believe is the main message of the closing words of Esther. And it's a great challenge, as you will see, to us Christians today. And it's this, that whenever God moves uniquely and powerfully in our lives, what Esther teaches us is that it is worth celebrating. Let me repeat that. Whenever God moves uniquely and powerfully in our lives today, But what Esther shows us is that it is worth celebrating. So let's dial into this. One last time in this series, don't miss the very real life, up and down drama of what has happened in the book of Esther over the last nine years that this story spans. You might remember it starts with bad news. The Israelites are in exile, fourth generation of exile, banished to far places in the north and east of the nation, Persia. But good news, Esther, this humble, godly Jewish woman, catches the king's eye and he marries her and makes her the queen. But then again, bad news. Mordecai, Esther's cousin, ticks off the king's second in command by refusing to bow to him because Mordecai, being a good Jew, wasn't going to bow to anybody but God. And Haman is so offended that he hatches a plan to annihilate, exterminate all of the Jews living in Persia, and there's over a million of them. But good news, Esther has a plan. We explored this over a couple of weeks in this series, but through a couple of very creative dinners, she reveals to her husband that she is Jewish herself and that Haman was after her people to annihilate them. And the king sides with Esther and Mordecai, gets rid of Haman, and then empowers the Jews to defeat the Persians who were going to come after them. And during a couple of days of arduous battle that we talked about last week, the Jews, with the help of the Persian army, defeat their enemies. Mordecai is now the second in command, and everyone's breathing easy once again. (laughs) At least as easy as you can breathe when you are in exile and have lost your land, houses, possessions, and church as you know it. And what you don't want to miss is that it is right at this point here in the second half of chapter nine of the book of Esther, that Mordecai and Esther declare it's party time. It's time to celebrate what God has obviously done in our lives. They're essentially gonna say to you and me, let's pause, let's not do a drive-by on this, and let's institute something that will help us to forever remember what God did to save his people from annihilation and help future generations remember this as well. 
And so going back to Haman's diabolical plan, I don't know if you remember this in chapters two and three, where he took these Babylonian dice that they called pur or purim, and he took these dice and he rolled them to try to somehow mystically come up with a day that he would label, let's kill all the Jews day. And so following that custom called Pur or Purim, they decided the Jews did to label their annual celebration Purim. And look at how they describe this celebration, this party time in Esther chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. This is going to be really relevant for you and me today. It says, Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because in those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. And then in verse 26, it tells us that they called this annual celebration Purim. And what you guys need to know here today, Cactus Venue Chapel in Northridge, what you guys all need to know is that for the last 2,500 years now, through all types of various settings, through good times and bad, through having a lot and having little, whatever, the Jewish people have celebrated annually this celebration called Purim. It usually falls in March, the Jewish calendar, that's when the month of Adar usually is, it collates with March, and this next Purim will fall on March 9th and 10th of 2020. And when the Purim celebration takes place for the Jewish people, they essentially engage in five activities that we see here in the book of Esther. You're going to like this. The first thing they do is that they begin the celebration the day before by fasting from sunup to sundown. Just like Esther did in Esther chapter 4 when she fasted to tap into God's protection, to ask him for protection for the Jewish people. So they fast to do a spiritual activity before the celebration. And then what they do, secondly, is that on the day that Purim starts, they read aloud the entire book of Esther to the Jewish community that they're in. It's called the Megillah, the scroll. And they read it aloud in one sitting, all 10 chapters, for everyone to hear. And it's really an amazing celebration. They hand out to all the children and many of the adults these very obnoxious noisemakers that are called graggers. And you're saying, well, why would they hand these out? Well, here's why. I'm going to twirl it for you right now just to show you what an obnoxious sound this makes. So here's the sound. Yeah, really obnoxious sound. And the reason they hand these out is that whenever the name of Haman comes up in the reading of the book of Esther, they all twirl this. By the way, his name comes up over 50 times in the book. And so they twirl these graggers and you go, why? I love this symbol, to blot out the name of Haman forever. 
the enemy of the Jews who was bent on destroying God's people, they blot out his name through the reading of Esther. And then when the book is done, they enter into a time of eating and drinking and feasting. And, and then they send gifts of food and drink to fellow Jews. In fact, I was told by a gentleman who grew up in a Jewish home here last night in our service, he said that you can actually go to Chompy's during Purim and get these little Haman cakes that, that Jewish people will send to each other. Again, it's just part of the celebration of Purim. And then lastly, as we read about Nestor, they give gifts of charity to the poor. Please see, it's a very celebratory event. In fact, one modern Jewish writer calls it a Jewish Mardi Gras for the Jewish people. It's that much of a positive, joyous, laughing-filled party. And as we've already established, this one celebration that we see instituted at the end of Esther here is just the tip of the iceberg. Man, the Jewish people did things like this all the time. Whenever God moved in their lives, they would give it a name. They'd institute a feast. They'd do something. They'd put a rock in a field to mark what God has done and say it's party time as we celebrate the move of God in our midst. And the question that I wrestle with, and I've been wrestling with it for 30 plus years now as a pastor, 40 years of being a Christian, is why don't Christians celebrate more often like this? I mean, even today, why don't you and I pattern ourselves after what we see in the Old Testament and when God moves in our lives in an unmistakable way, when God does something in your marriage or with your kids or with you on your job or whatever it might be, why don't we give it a name? Why don't we mark that day? Why don't we do things that would celebrate like what we see in the Old Testament, why don't we pattern ourselves more after what we see in the Bible? And to be sure, and to be fair, we have our cross, and some of you have a fish on the back of your car, you got that symbol. And then we have Christmas and Easter, the incarnation and the resurrection, those are holidays. And then other traditions might add in Good Friday, or Maundy Thursday, or Ash Wednesday, or something like that. But, but there's no mistaking, here's the reality. Compared to the pattern that we see set forth in the Old Testament, where they seem to have some sort of symbolic representation or celebration whenever God moved in their midst, by comparison, we pale. In fact, I thought about it this way. I thought, you know, when it comes to celebrations, the, the Jewish people are actually the Ferrari of celebrations, and, and we Christians are driving a bunch of fiats. That's really what it's like. And there's nothing wrong with a Fiat. I happen to drive a Fiat, but it's nothing to write home about. A Ferrari is. And it's not a competitive thing. I'm not in competition with, with the Jewish people. It's just that when I read in the Old Testament about all the wonderful and various symbols and celebrations they developed right in the midst of what God was doing in their, in, in their communities, I begin to long for this kind of thing in my life. In short, I want to party more in my life. If you were to come into my office, and most of you aren't because you're not invited, but if you were to come into my office, <laughs> no, I'm teasing, but well, I'm really not. But anyways, uh, you would see uh, you know, my, my general desk and all that and a little conference area, but behind the wall is where I keep my library. 
And, and I have about 3,000 books that I've accumulated over the years, which is far less than a lot of my pastor friends, but they are books that are very dear to me that have formulated my theological thinking. And in the uh, far right to my library, there's a, a very large shelf that has a bunch of what you might call knickknacks on it. And, and people are always amazed at that shelf. They look at it and go, well, you know, what's this and what's that? And, and, and the answer is the, these two shelves of knickknacks are, are my personal Ebenezer's. They are my rocks that I put in the middle of the field of my life of what God has done. Now watch this, either in my life or sometimes even in your life and you let me be a part of it and I forever remember what God did because of something that you might have given me that reminds me of the move of God that we want to celebrate one of the things you would see on the shelf is you would see 10 of these lined up and you'd go, as people do quite often, what is this? And, and, and what this is, is an antique sprinkler out of a building, say in Chicago, we'll turn it upside down. You can see it hanging from a ceiling and when the fire gets real high, it would break this glass here and push the cylinder down and the water would come down and, and put out the fire. It's an antique sprinkler. These 10 items were given to me one at a time by a friend of mine back in Cleveland when I was his pastor about 15 years ago. And they remind me, they're my Ebenezer's, of something that God did in his life that I don't see happen too often. My friend, as you can guess, was a fireman. He started off as a fireman and then became a fire chief and eventually became the head of the entire department in the town that he was in and eventually became a fire arson investigator. And he started his own investigative firm and was wildly successful. In fact, he became one of the top fire arson investigators uh, in the nation. Uh, just wanted to testify in trials and all that. And just did very, very well for himself. And I'll never forget when he first came to my church. He's a very godly man, a good man. And he came to my church. And he was driving pretty far away to come to the church I was pastoring in Cleveland. And one day he said, hey, would you mind grabbing lunch sometime? And I said, sure. And so we set a date in the future and, and we sat down for lunch. And it was there that he told me a story that really marked why these things are important to me. And, I, and I'll tell you the story right now. I asked him at one point, so what brought you to Fellowship Bible Church, the church I was pastoring? He said, well, that's a, a difficult story. He said, for 20 years before we came to this church just recently, he goes, I was at another church, and he listed the church uh, nearer to the city of Cleveland. And he said, I would be, was very involved there. I became best friends with the pastor, and I was the chairman of the board of this church, the elder board. And he said, at one point in this church, he said, um, there was an accusation made against the pastor it was an accusation made by a woman saying that she had had an affair with the pastor. And we were a very conservative church and couldn't even imagine something like that. So I went to this pastor who was a friend of mine and I asked him if that was true and he said no. He said, but this woman was making, you know, obviously a, a, a lot of noise about it as she should if that was happening. And it became known more around the church and we had to have a lot of meetings and we met with her and met with him. And, and he said, more than once, numerous occasions, my pastor said to me when I looked him in the eye and said, did you do this? He said, no, I'm telling you, I did not. She's lying. He would tell me the story. He said, eventually, after months of this, the, the heat just kept turning up and turning up and turning up until eventually the pastor in front of the whole church says, it's true. I had been having an affair with her. And more so, this pastor had lied to the chairman of his board. My friend looked him in the eye and just betrayed him. 
As you can imagine, the whole church was also now mad at the chairman of the board because the chairman of the board had publicly defended the pastor and put his reputation on the line and now come to find out that the pastor had been lying. And he said, it became so rough for me and my wife that eventually it was just our names were mud and so we felt it was best to leave the church. And he said, and that's how we ended up at, at your church. Now, here's where the story gets rich. He's telling me the story over uh, our first lunch, and I kind of leaned forward as I am right now, and I, and I just asked him a very probing question. I said, why in the world would you want to get close to me? <laughs> I, I mean, think about it. This guy had just been burned, been deeply hurt by a pastor who lied to him who betrayed his trust, who he stuck his neck out for and wounded him deeply. I mean, I'm a realist, gang, and I'm sitting there hearing his story and you know, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I was in his shoes, if I was not a pastor, but I was in a seat just like you guys where you are right now and at our other campuses and venues, and a pastor hurt me that deep, deeply, I don't think I'd leave Jesus. I wouldn't because I love Jesus and I'm not in this for you. I'm in this for Jesus. But I'd be hard-pressed to dive right back into a church and never trust a pastor again. And yet here this guy is, you know, saying to me, hey, hey I want to, you know, get to know you better. And, and he said to me, I said, why are you here? Why are you getting to know me? And he said, Jamie, you don't understand. He said, I love Jesus, but I also love his church. And yes, I've been wounded deeply. And then he said this, he said, but I'm never, ever going to give up on God's church and he said, you might let me down someday too. I hope you don't. But even if you do, I'm going to give it another try again because this is about God and his church. Folks, I have been with so many folks who have been wounded by the church. I have more stories than that than I ever care to know. It grieves me every day. And there are so many spiritual casualties out there as a result that it makes me try to mind my P's and Q's every moment of every day. But the reality is, is that when I heard this friend of mine tell me about his tenacious faith in God and even his tenacious faith in God's church, I was moved in my spirit and I thought to myself, only God. I mean, only God could do that. And then every time he would meet, I don't even know why because I really don't, I'm not into these things. He would give me uh, one of these sprinklers. And so you know what I did? I immediately I kept all of these, started thinking of my friend every time I saw these, and I thought about the fire that erupted in his life as a result of being so hurt and how God allowed his water, his soothing, fire-putting-out water to just rain down on his life. And every time I see one of these in my office, I think of my friend, I think about the move of God in his life, and I think only God. These have become an Ebenezer of God's move in his life that has moved me. And I could bore the snot out of you with so many more stories of all the Ebenezers that I have in my office and at home of God's movement in your lives and in mine. And here's the point. Christians need to celebrate more. We need to have more Ebenezers. We need to have more special names. We need to have lots of stories of what God has done. And we need to mark these celebrations in tangible ways so that we never forget. 
And just so that we're really clear on what God is after and what I'm going to call kingdom celebrations, kingdom parties, so that we distinguish them from your office parties or your year-end party or your high school class reunion, because as good as those things might be, let's just be frank, those are fleshly parties, right? Those are, are, are human parties. Those are worldly parties. Not bad, but they're celebrating things without. God usually, to, to, to distinguish that, notice with me, going back to the book of Esther, two things that they did to make sure it was a kingdom party. The first thing they did was to honor that we celebrate in order to remember and honor what God has done. So that's the first principle. We celebrate in order to remember and honor what God has done. Look at how this happens in the book of Esther here toward the tail end. It says, so these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim, there it is, were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Whoa. It's like the author is saying, we do this so that we never forget we never forget what God has done in our midst. We never forget where we were, where we almost ended up, but that with God's help and movement and activity in our lives, here's where we are now, and it's a result of his power and his grace. So just like a birthday celebration marks the day that kid was born, or an anniversary marks the day you got married, kingdom celebrations mark the day, the time, the moment in history of what God did in your life, or better yet, in our lives. This is priority number one. And if it doesn't do this, let's just be men and women about this, it's not a kingdom party. It's no different from your annual company picnic or, again, a high school graduation. That's not, I mean, high school uh, reunion. That's not bad. Again, those aren't bad things, but let's be frank about what makes a kingdom party. It's remembering what God has done in our lives. And then even more specifically, notice with me a second principle that Esther 9 teaches us about any and all kingdom celebrations we might choose to have. And that is that we celebrate spiritually and relationally. And this is really clear in, in the story. Look one last time at the book of Esther, verses 31 and then 22 of chapter 9. It says, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them, and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times, here it is, of fasting and their lamentations, because in those days the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned for them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Simply notice, go back one slide. Simply notice here, you have a spiritual component to this idea of Purim, fasting and lamentations to get in touch with what God has done and will now still do in protecting his people. But then notice, go forward one slide, a relational component. It's done together as the community of faith. And it's done even to help those in need. So add it all up. 
their celebrations in the Old Testament almost always had a God focus. In fact, they did always have a God focus on what he has done. And they added a spiritual component to it, whether it was fasting, lamenting, praying, singing, serving. They'd do something spiritually to commemorate what God had done. And then they'd also do it in the realm of community together, celebrating God's movement, whether in your life, my life, or our lives together. That's the idea. And so this is what makes kingdom celebrations different from the celebrations of the world. They have a component of relationality, spirituality, based on what God has done. And I know how some of you are thinking right now, you're thinking, well, man, I mean, I can get into Perm and I can read the Old Testament and, you know, I heard your story about your buddy, you know, and what God did when he left this church and went to this church, but what do I, what do I have to celebrate? <laughs> Let me prime the pump for you right now. Let's start really easy. If you are here today and you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, I have one question for you. Has God saved you eternally from your sin and from their consequences and guaranteed you a place in heaven because of Jesus, yes or no? Yes. Is that worth celebrating, yes or no? Yeah. Well, let's get more specific. Has he ever brought hope and healing to your marriage? Some of you, yes or no? Yes. Is that worth celebrating? Yes. Has he ever freed you from an addiction? Or if you've never been an addict, we all can relate to this, a besetting sin in our lives. One that has gripped us by the throat and we thought, man, I'm never gonna get over this. But God shows up and he releases us from it. Now I have a question for you. Is that worth celebrating? The answer is yes. Has he ever given you renewed hope and purpose this side of heaven when you're going downhill spiritually and you're losing your hope and you're struggling and yet as the psalmist says, I was stuck in the muck and mire but God reached down and he put me on dry land. Has he ever done that for you at all in your life? For many of us, the answer is yes. And it's worth celebrating. Men, I got a question for you. <laughs> Has God ever calmed the rage inside of you? Has he ever helped you not be such an angry man to your children and your spouse? Or if you're never one who gets angry, you're just manipulative. Has he, ever, has he ever changed that in you? For many of us, he has. And I'm telling you, that's worth celebrating. Has he ever answered your prayer about your kid and helped your kid get his or her life back together? I think that's worth celebrating. You get the point. There are tons of moments. My, my mentor, Ludd, back in Cleveland, used to call these God sightings. Plenty of God sightings where God moves uniquely and powerfully in our lives. And here's the simple point of Esther. Is it hit the pause button. Celebrate what God has done. Because you're not going to want to ever forget that. And you're going to want to party over that. Because all of heaven's partying with you. About two weeks ago, I was hiking with Neil back in the uh, McDowell Mountains on my day off and with uh, our friend Jerry, and we were just gabbing and hiking and all that stuff. And at one point, we, we were passing some people. We passed this one gentleman, and we said hi, because we're Christians. And so we said hi. And uh, <laughs> don't you love this town? Like, nobody says hi. You know, it's like, oh, well, let's get people out of the shell. So we said hi and all that. And about five feet after this gentleman walked past us, he turned around and he yelled, Pastor Jamie. And I, I had on my Cleveland Browns hat. That must have been what gave it away. And uh, so I, I turned around and I said, yes, it's me. And I'd never met the man. He said, I've never met you. He said, and I just started coming to your church. And I said to him what I always say, you mean our church. You just started coming to our church. And he said, I, and, and, and I just got to tell you, um, it's changed my life. 
absolutely changed my life. And I thought to myself, well, put it in an email. And, uh, you know, because I'd like to hear more about that. Before I could say that, he actually said to me, and I wrote you an email <laughs> about it. And I had not been in the office yet. It was Monday, and I was going to go in the office obviously Tuesday, and he'd just written the email late that week. So uh, I got in the office, and actually we said hi to him and all that stuff and went on with our hikes. And, and, but I was wondering, you know, what is it that changed his life? And then I got his email. And, uh, you know, initially this is going to be about me, but it's really not. It's about God. And, and, and my simple question as I read this to you, and it's a, it's a very leading question, is what you're about to hear what God did in this guy's life, is this worth celebrating or not? Because here's what he says. He, he says, dear Pastor Jamie, I have been running away from the Lord for at least the last 15 years. And on August 13th, a friend of mine recommended that I listen to your Get God sermon based on some very difficult times that I was going through. On August 14th, I hopped on a 5 a.m. flight to Houston for work, and at 7.15 a.m., he's very specific, uh, AZ time, I was literally sobbing on the plane after listening to your message. It was the loudest I've heard the Lord speak to me in my life. I was such a mess, and at the lowest point in my life that I couldn't wait till next Sunday to go to Scottsdale Bible Church for the first time. He says, on August 19th, God had enough and took a baseball bat the size of a redwood tree and knocked me out. It was at that moment I finally realized I literally had nothing left. I was depleted and completely worn out. I had nothing to give other than my entire life back to the Lord. I fell on my hands and knees, asked the Lord for forgiveness, and immediately I could feel the Holy Spirit enter my life and begin the healing process. Since that time, I've been to church every weekend. I've started my mornings off every day with the Lord, 66 days and counting, and I've been diligently reading the Bible through. Just in the last two months, I've witnessed miracles in my life that I never would have thought possible. I have no idea what God's plan is for me moving forward, but I pray every morning and continually throughout the day that I will trust him, obey him, and wait patiently for wherever he leads. And then he talks about a new song in his heart. And he says, thank you, I hope we can meet soon. And we actually met there on the hiking trail and, and gave me his name. Here's my simple question for you. <laughs> I don't even know what the issues are in this guy's life. He never says, uh, but filling in the gaps. Is this something this guy might want to mark and remember for the very rest of his life, yes or no? Yeah, because there's probably tough times coming down the pike for him, Amen. He's on a spiritual high right now. He's come back to the Lord. Things are going great. But if I don't miss my guess, because I have been there, I've written notes like this myself, there are valley days coming. And it's in those valley days, and here's the point, that you want to remember the mountaintops, amen? It's in those valley days where you want to remember what C.S. Lewis calls that first fervor, where you were excited about the Lord and then all the fervors ever since then. And that's exactly what the book of Esther is teaching us, to not do a drive-by of these times and to mark them. And so here's what we're going to do as we wrap up our time together today and then here at other campuses and venues. And that is that we're going to head into our home stretch time together, engaging in a very meaningful celebration of our own. And here's what we're going to do, and this is going to blow some of you away. We're going to celebrate what God has done in your life. I'm gonna ask you to identify right now just one move of God 
in your life over how many years you've been alive and, and to write it down. So here's what I want you to do. All of you right now, uh, if you're handed a bulletin, you got a little card like this. I want you to pull it out because the card says the kingdom of God is a party. And what I'm gonna ask you to do right now, or we'll give you a few minutes to do it in a few minutes, <laughs> is I'm gonna ask you to write down just one move of God in your life that you feel after today's message would be worth celebrating. And we're gonna celebrate it here in a minute. Now, some of you, because I know how you think, are thinking, well, I'm not sure I really have one. Yes, you do. Because here's your ace in the hole. Say for the sake of argument, you don't even know Jesus here today. Someone dragged you to church. You're vaguely interested in spirituality. The fact that you're in church today is a victory, amen? The fact that you're in church here today is something that I would say is worth celebrating because it beats any bar or country club hands down. So the fact that you're here today is a spiritual victory. That, that's the, the, the least common denominator. But how about this? Are you saved? Are you happily married? Or are you in a significant relationship? Did you grow up in a pretty good family of origin in which they helped you mature as adults? Uh, have you had a recent event or an answer to prayer? Uh, how about your kids' spiritual lives? How about any freedom from addiction? In other words, there's something that you have seen God do in your life, and we simply want you to write it down. You don't have to write it down, but it'll be meaningful if you do. Because then the second thing we're going to do is that in a moment we're going to pray, and I'm gonna release the campuses and venues to have their own celebration time. And after we get done praying, we're gonna have ushers all throughout the room here with big baskets, and in each of their baskets, and then our other campuses and venues will have it too, we have some noisemakers. I, I thought about, I literally did. We looked into buying 6,000 of these. <laughs> Kathy Wilson, you would have loved this, 6,000 of these. I just didn't want people to blot out the name of Jamie, so this would not be a good symbolism uh, there. So we bought noisemakers for you, and some of them even say the kingdom of God is a party on it, and others don't. But it doesn't matter. Just We're going to ask you to hand in, to get up where you are, Go to a spot in the sanctuary, it'll be close to you. Hand in uh, the move of God, fold it, don't put your name on it, it's anonymous, between you and God, hand in the offering plate and grab one of these. Now, this is really important because many of you have no self-discipline. When you get this, <laughs> you are not to immediately begin blowing it. The reason is, is because Corinthians says that we need to do everything with decency and order, amen? <laughs> So this is still a house of God. This is not a football stadium. So you are to get this. Somebody last night just couldn't help it and they blew it and I gave her a very dirty look. So you're supposed to grab this. I didn't. And, uh, and, 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 and then have a seat. Please don't leave because we're celebrating what God has done. Have a seat and, and, and then Neil and I here and then the other pastors in other places will lead us together in a celebration of what God has done. This might feel hokey to some of you. No, no, no. Don't let Satan give you that thought. You might not buy party favors like these often. I certainly don't. I'm not known as a party animal here. This is simply an Ebenezer until you find your own. We're simply asking you to identify what God has done in your life, what you think would be worth celebrating because we want you to, to celebrate that and then grab this and we'll all celebrate together until you can find maybe an Ebenezer or maybe this will be it for you but we wanna begin our celebration 
right and then spend the rest of our lives celebrating the move of God in our midst. And then we're going to end with a great time of worship. Derek and the team and then the other campuses have it as well. Just a, a very high energy worship song that we can give ourselves to God in a celebratory way. So, why not you guys bow with me. Let's enter into this time of worship with some joy. Father, there are some who have come into this place here today, as well as at Cactus, Northridge, Chapel, and Venue, and they just feel beat up. They came in here today because it's church and it's a safe place for them, but man, they're hurting and discouraged. And so, Lord, I pray that what we're about to engage in would be nothing but an encouragement, a sign of hope, that like you did in the book of Esther, in saving your people, even when you seem so very much behind the scenes, would be a great bouncing point for celebration for us that you're still doing that today. And so, Lord, I pray that as beat up as some of us might feel, we would identify what you've done, even in history past, anticipate what you're going to do, and begin to join heaven in their celebration. And so, Lord, anoint this time by your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to play some light music for you right now. The ushers are already in the aisles up there in the, uh, in, in, in the, in the upper sections. And so whenever you're ready, just stand up, go, and if you wrote it down, put it in the offering plate. If you didn't, that's fine. Just grab your Ebenezer and then have a seat as quickly as you can because we want to celebrate together what God has done.
All right, as soon as, uh, as soon as you grab your noisemaker, try to have a seat. We're gonna, we're gonna get you out of here as quick as we can, but we, uh, we wanna celebrate. So we're just gonna let the uh, aisles continue to go, so. Uh, she's doing great. Somebody already blew it, yeah. It's unbelievable. So as, as the rest of the people are, are finishing up and, and doing their time of worship and, and getting their noisemaker, let me just uh, make a couple of comments really quickly. I, I just can't tell you how much I love you guys and, and how much I enjoy seeing the Lord uh, move in your lives. Obviously, first and foremost, for salvation, because I celebrate every time somebody gets saved here or when you tell me about the joy of your salvation. But, you know, even after that, obviously, hugely after that, when I see God do things in answer to prayer in your life, I just never tired of, of celebrating that with you. And yet I don't celebrate enough. My wife tells me that all the time. I'm an intense leader. I move kind of fast. And, and she tells me all the time, you need to slow down and pause and celebrate what the Lord has done. So here's what I've done. Neil Montgomery, as you guys know, is our campus pastor here at the Worship Center, and he is so much more fun and joyful than me. And so it's just true. You all know that, yep. And so last night I, I led the celebration and, you know, it only hit about 96 decibels. And so Neil is gonna lead us in our time of celebration now. And again, the, the key is, is this isn't just, you know, some little party thing. This is identifying and celebrating what God has done in your life. I wish I knew all the things we are celebrating right now, but God knows. And hopefully as you celebrate what he has done and then share that this week with those around you, man, the kingdom of God is going to be so much better for it. So Neil, would you lead us in a time of celebration? I think celebration? the key of D, do you think? So just as you, I've been practicing all week long, we're gonna, this is gonna be a little weird, but fun, just like Jamie said, let's make it like uh, New Year's Eve. Let's count down from uh, 5,000, no, five, uh, from five, ready? Five, four, four three, three, two, one. one. 